0: This week on the podcast, we welcome Mark O'Leary from the Dust Bowl 100 in Indiana. Kind of funny story. One of my oldest cycling buddies, John Grotland, texted me and asked me if I'd ever heard of the Dust Bowl 100, an event he'd done before that he had a blast at. I said, no, I hadn't heard of it. As I started digging in, I started to understand this is a really great event in Indiana. So I was super stoked to get Mark on board to talk about the event. Super nice guy. Looks like it creates a really fun event with some dynamic and fun racing. So always great to hear about new gravel and new parts of the country. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Before we jump in, I did want to apologize for the month-long break, unexpected break, that I took in publishing. It was kind of a combination of things in my life that ended up making the podcast difficult to schedule and produce. I got COVID, I had whatever the podcasting equivalent of writer's block is, and just couldn't get off the ball and fell behind, and it started to feel like I just couldn't handle everything that was going on in my life. So rather than force it, I decided to kind of forgive myself a little bit, take a step back, take a little bit of time off, but I'm excited to get back in the swing of things. I'm not quite out of the woods in terms of scheduling, But as always, I've got a great backlog of guests that I'm trying to reach out to and find time with. So anyway, thanks for bearing with me. Look forward to getting back into the swing of things. As always, we've got a vast back catalog of content you can tap into if you ever miss my voice. I did need to thank this week's sponsor, Dynamic Cyclist. This is always the time of year when I start seriously thinking about (laughs) stretching... when I start seriously thinking about stretching and strengthening. I guess it's kind of natural given the ebb and flow of anybody's cycling season. But every year I say, this is the year I gotta buckle down. And honestly, it wasn't until I connected with the team at Dynamic Cyclist and started doing their 15 minute or so videos on stretching that are focused on the needs of cyclists that I kind of really crack the code. And I need to recommit again this year because I do see a lot of benefit. Certainly if you're riding hard and riding technical terrain, it's just critical to remain limber and it gives your muscles a little bit of break and ease. Something I think we could all use. So. Dynamic Cyclist has a vast library of content. They've got injury specific content that you can tap into. So if you've got a knee problem or back problem, they've got specific routines that can help support getting limber in those areas that are gonna support, say your low back, which is my consistent problem. Anyway, check them out at dynamiccyclist.com. You can get 15% off a monthly or annual membership. Using the code the gravel ride, or by checking the link in these show notes, they also have a free one week trial. So now's the time to give Dynamic Cyclist a try. With that business behind us, let's jump right into my conversation with Mark and the Dust Bowl One Hundred. Mark, welcome to the show. Yeah,
1: glad to be here, Craig. It's uh, it's exciting. I've been a listener to the podcast for a long time, and um, excited to be here tonight to talk about the Dust Bowl One Hundred. I love it. And
0: as an introduction to how I discovered the Dust Bowl 100, I got a, uh, I got a text message from my long term cycling friend, a guy I used to work in a bike shop with when we were both in college. And he's like, Hey, Craig, are you familiar with the Dust Bowl 100? I should probably read it to you. Have you considered interviewing Mark O'Leary, the founder of the Dust Bowl 100? That race has hit a tipping point where it will be one of the premier events in the country. If you're interested, I'll make the connection. And I was like, that's, that's awesome. Let's do it.
1: That's really cool. Uh, he sent me a similar message and said, you know, have you heard of the Gravel Ride podcast? And uh, I was like, absolutely. I listen to it every week. And he's like, well, I've got a connection there. I'll see if I can get you on. So <laughs> I, was, uh, <laughs> I was pretty pumped to hear that. Nice. Let's
0: start off as we always do. Mark, uh, where'd you grow up and how did you discover cycling? you know, as a child, and then later, how did you discover it as a sport to participate in?
1: Yeah, okay. Um, I'm a lifelong Hoosier, born and raised in Indiana. Um, grew up in Terre Haute, so the west side of the state. Um, probably best known as a place where Larry Bird um, went to college at Indiana State. Um, growing up, um, I've got three brothers. We were all into the, the stick and ball sports, so basketball and football were the big ones to played. Um, and I was lucky enough to play basketball, uh, all the way through college. So, um, you know, the bike, um, growing up was, was, you know, something I did for fun. Um, I'd like to ride to my friend's house. Um, I love the exploration aspect of riding the bike. Um, just going to find, um, you know, trails in the parks next to our, our neighborhood or, uh, you know, when I got to middle school, riding downtown to get a haircut in high school over the summer, I'd ride my bike into basketball practice uh, here and there, but the bike was, was never really uh, cycling was never really a sport that I would consider at that point. It was just more a means to get around and, uh, and and just, you know, have some fun with friends basically. Um, and then, as I said, I played basketball through college, um, went to Hanover college down in Southern Indiana, um, a little division three school on the, on the Ohio river. Um, and at that point, you know, the bike was, I could get to class, um, get across campus a little quicker by hopping on the bike. And and that was the extent of my riding a bike, uh, in in college. Yeah. I can't imagine Um, as
0: being someone in Indiana showing promise in the sport of basketball that anybody was encouraging you to do anything but basketball.
1: Right. That's, that is very (laughs) true. I mean, Indiana is basketball is the sport of Indiana. So, um, that was the focus of, you know, I put all my focus into that and, and yeah, I didn't have you know, I played football a little bit growing up and but when, by the time I got to high school, it was fully focused on basketball. So not much time for any other sports or activities. Nice. So you, you played, continued playing basketball at
0: the college level. Once you graduated, were you thinking about continuing to play basketball or was it, uh, you know, sort of the end of your career of basketball?
1: As far as a, you know, competitive being on part of a team, that was the end of my career. Um, but, you know, I played in some men's leagues, some rec leagues after college, um, just try to keep the competitive juices flowing. Um, but, you know, after a year or two, the knees started to hurt a little bit more than they um, than they had before. Uh, you know, I couldn't jump as high, couldn't shoot as well as I, as I did in college. It's kind of one of those things like, well, I need to find something else to do. I, you know, I'm still really competitive, but my competitive uh, itch wasn't getting scratched with how— how my transition of the basketball game was going. So I needed to look for something else. I tried doing some running, but again, the knees did not enjoy that. So, um, really kind of just fell into the, um, fell into the bike. Um, were you in Indianapolis at that point? Yeah. Yep. So I, after college moved up to the Indianapolis area, I live in Plainfield. So it's, uh, it's on the West side. It's a West side suburb of Indianapolis, um, right by the airport. And we have a fantastic, trail network uh rails to trails network here in town every single neighborhood is connected by a trail we have tons of parks that are all connected with the trails and um, really just got a, a bike at walmart to go ride the trails and kind of explore town since since we were newer to town at that point and uh did that for you know a month and was like you know what i want to go venture out and get out on some of the county roads around here and see what else is out there things i don't see in a car on a day-to-day basis and you know i think My first, what I call long ride was probably 10 miles. I got, you know, five miles out of town and I thought i had, you know, done a century ride. And I was, I was like, this is awesome. I can't believe all these things I'm seeing that I don't don't see on a day-to-day basis. And really from there, uh, I got bit by the bug quick and, um, you know, jumped right into, found some group rides then jumped into, you know, trying to ride faster than doing some training to keep up with the past group and then jumped into you know, racing with, with crits and, um, and some cyclocross, you know, a a year or two into riding. So.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. I was going to ask you in the Indianapolis scene, as, as you got interested in riding, what was the easiest genre of cycling to get into? Was there a big road scene, a crit scene? What, what kind of was the easiest thing to kind of get that performance side of the sport, uh, getting, getting excited about it?
1: I think so. I started, around 2011 is when I got into cycling. Um, so at that point, um, there were still a lot of criteriums and a couple of road races in the Indianapolis area. Um, I tell my friends now, like, you know, they met, they, they, if they've started writing recently, like they missed out on a great crit scene back then. Um, you could, you could race a crit almost every weekend from April through, um, July or August within, you know, an hour, maybe two hours of Indianapolis. And so that yeah. was great. So I, that that helped me get into the sport again fed that competitive itch um and so that was great at that time we also had a time trial series um that took place um just one town over from where i live and um that was a five i think a five race series on sunday mornings um throughout the summer so that was another way just to get a quick easy race in and, and get that competitive juice flowing and um, so I'd say time trials and, and criteriums were what you know initially got me into the competitive side of the sport.
0: Yeah, there's something to be said for both of those being like an hour long or less events because you can kind of yep. leave your family, go race a race, and be home before they're even done with brunch. Versus, yep. you know, these gravel events <laughs> we love now, you've got to commit to an entire day or you've got to travel. It's a lot more of a production than a crit or a time trial would be.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I love the time trial because it was a Sunday morning at like 7am. So I could go there, race, come home, shower, get to church with the family, you know, by 930 in the morning. And it was, it was great. So um, there is something to be said for the short and local races for sure.
0: Yeah. So um, again, just naivete around Indianapolis and the riding around there. When did you start to discover gravel cycling and, and, and the off-road riding possible around Indianapolis?
1: Yeah, um, I would say probably 2014, 2015. I was pretty early into riding gravel, kind of the riding gravel scene around here. Um, You know, at that point, um, I guess I've always been interested in the outdoors and getting outside, seeing nature, kind of exploring, which I mentioned before. And so finding gravel was my way to kind of do that on the bike. And we've got a couple... Uh, rails to trails in the neighboring county, Putnam County, which the Dust Bowl takes place in, Um, there's a rail trail system that's crushed limestone. And so that was my first kind of foray into getting into the gravel and just rode that trail a couple times and got out in the country. And over over the course of time, um, kind of veered off, it would cross some gravel roads. I'd turn down that gravel road and see where it took me. And um, at that time, you know, there wasn't a big gravel riding or racing scene in Indiana or really anywhere. Um, but there was a bike shop, um, on the Northwest side of Indianapolis that put on a, a week or a monthly gravel ride. They, they called it the most, most inconvenient, um, uh, weeknight gra- or weeknight ride because it was, you know, 30 or 40 minutes outside of town. Um, <laughs> it was at a park, but it was my, it was my first group ride gravel experience. And that was a, a again, a monthly ride that they put on. Um, so that, that was kind of my first step into riding gravel as a group and then there were a couple of event a couple of events um, that gravel events that uh, you know were taking place then um, I think the the longest gravel longest running gravel event in Indiana um, is called the gravel gravel and it takes place the weekend after uh, Thanksgiving every year so um, I think that's been going on since 2011 maybe um, so I think 2016, 2017, I participated in that my first time. Um, and that takes place in the Hoosier national forest. So you're out in the middle of nowhere, out in the the woods and the Hills. Um, and then there was a race on the North side of Indianapolis called the harvest 50. And I believe that started in 2015. It's still going today. Um, and that was kind of the first, uh, or the other gravel race that, that, you know, was happening around here. So, um, I've participated in every harvest 50 since it started. Um, and I've been, you know, participating in the Gravel Grovel almost every year as well. So those, those are the two events that got me into it. And yet, had you
0: traveled out of
1: state to participate in any events? Uh, no, with, with the young family. Um, typically try to do all of my events in the state. Um, that said, you know, recently, um, I, I've, I went out to Unbound this year, um, participated, did the 200-mile race there, um, went to Barrier Bay in Michigan this year. Awesome. Um, Went out to Mid South last year. Have done some races in in Illinois, but um, outside of those, most of my riding and racing is in Indiana. Just just to keep it close for the family, and you know, not have to spend too much time on the road. So,
0: yeah, with a couple of those great Indiana events already being on the calendar, what inspired you to create your own?
1: Um, I, I think a couple things is one is just I was appreciative of, of those. Promoters and those events that they put on, and felt like you know putting on my own event was another way to give back to that cycling community and, and you know do something that those events had been doing for a while and just give people another option to um, you know participate and get that get out there and explore, see new roads that they wouldn't typically see. Um, and then going back to you know I mentioned earlier that there was a great crit scene back in you know 2012, 2013. Um, but over the years, it has died out, and there's very few events now on the roadside yeah. in Indiana. So um, I also wanted to to do something else to get another event on, on the calendar that, you know, everybody in Indiana could focus on and participate in and kind of create a big, um, you know, at least regional, if not national level event um, here in the state of Indiana. So that was kind of the the, the other reason behind it.
0: And when you, when you jumped into planning the first event, had you had any experience planning events like this or exposure to some of the other race organizers to understand what you were getting into?
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes. And no. So, um, in college, I, I helped, um, organize a five K run for the first time on Hanover's campus. So I had some event, you know, management experience there. My first job out of college, um, was working for an event management company or event um, merchandise company where we would go to events and set up pro shops at, you know, racing events, NFL stadiums, those type of things. So um, kind of had the the event background from from that career as well. Um, and then uh, I've been the president of my cycling club here in, in, in Plainfield for a number of years. And as part of that, I would always just put on, you know, grassroots um, fun weekend events where we'd go, you know, go after some Strava segments, um, here and there, or we'd go do a race around a park or different things and, and just kind of had a little bit of experience with that. Um, and then I'd also, you know, as I got into thinking about doing an event uh, a, an actual, you know, full scale event, um, I volunteered with a couple organizations, um, that put on like charity rides, uh, in the, in the area as well, just got on their you know, planning committee so yeah. i could see how those events ran how those how how they did um how they did those events and what went into it so that gave me a good idea getting into it like here's a checklist of things i need to do to make it a successful event so um, yeah
0: interesting you know you answered my question which was you know a lot of times event organizers will kind of create a group ride and then it'll expand then it'll expand and then it will become an event but you had done that, it sounds like, in a lot of different capacities and taken the time to learn from a, other organizers. So it sounds like, and don't like, let me put words in your mouth, but when you decided to go for the Dust Bowl 100, it was going to be a thing. You know, you were going to have to invest capital in it. You were going to have to get sponsors. You were going to have to do a lot more. How did you approach kind of getting the capital together to put a race of this size together?
1: So... Um... I think the maybe the first thing to take a step back is I decided I think it was February of 2020 um, to put on the Dust Bowl. I was out riding that day um, out on some of the roads that we use on the course, and I was like, you know what, I need to just take the step and, and put on an event and show you know everybody these roads. They're worth showing off. Um, and then obviously, you know, a month later, COVID hit, and um, that plan to have an event in July of of uh, 2020 that year didn't didn't transpire um but that said when july of 2020 rolled around we still had uh our restrictions had been lifted a little bit here um so i basically did a uh, a test run of the dust bowl that year with about 30 i think we had 34 participants mainly teammates and friends um put a a small event out on facebook and and had a few other people uh, from the area join actually had a couple of people from Illinois come over and participate. Um, but that was a, a real blessing in disguise because um, I was able to do a test run of the event, get great feedback from the participants as, you know, is the course, how do, how do you like the course? What could be done better? Um, just get a feel for how to manage an event. And, uh, and to do that with 34 people was really helpful. Um, and then that gave me, you know, 18 months to, to plan actually for the first event in 2021, the first official event. Okay. Um, and so, you know, going back to the capital question, um, it was, I guess just a risk. It was, you know, spending a few thousand dollars of my own money to, you know, set up an LLC oh. to run the event under, and get the initial yeah. permits and, you know, just crossing my fingers that I could get a hundred people to sign up to cover those, you know, to, to get those fees, uh, those fees back. Right. And, uh, and was able to do that. And then as the time went on, you brought some sponsors on board and all of that. So.
0: It, were you were you able to get sponsors
1: in that first year? Yeah, um, I did. I did have a handful of sponsors. I with Go Contracting. Um, it's a, a, a concrete company here in Indiana, but they're they're nationwide. Um, they have a cycling team, and and I knew their their president really well. And um, I was I was blessed to have them come on board as a title sponsor for the those first two years. And, and provide some capital that we really needed to get the event going and to grow it and to do some of the things that I wanted to do but couldn't do with just participant entry fees. Um, and then had a few other sponsors come on as well as uh, you know a few monetary sponsors and then just product sponsors or giveaways yeah. or, or different things like yeah. that. Yeah,
0: that was one of the cool things in visiting the dustbowl 100.com dot com website. Scrolling down to the sponsors, it's not just simply cycling industry sponsors. You've clearly like tapped into some, the local community and different other types of sponsors, which I just think is cool to see because you you don't always see that in in events.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's one of those things where I think you know a lot of people rely on and the first instinct is to go to a bike shop or go to somebody in the industry to sponsor the event. But I think if you can draw on some of those outside supporters as well, um, not only does that you know benefit the event, but um, it gets that sponsor's name out there. And then it also just, you know, when, when, when a spot, when a, when a non-endemic sponsor is involved in the event that just, you know, grows the, uh, the interest and the awareness of the event with, you know, the employees of that company, um, others in the community and stuff as well. So really try to, you know, approach it both ways and make the connections in the bike industry, but also, you know, support the local, um, businesses as well. Yeah. Can you paint a picture of what the course of the Dust Bowl 100 or
0: courses looks like? What type of riding is there? You know, it sounds like at this point you've experienced a number of the kind of marquee events around the Midwest and experienced a bunch of different types of gravel. So maybe just give perspective on what are the key features of the ride? How much elevation are we talking? The distances and how would one sort of prepare themselves and their equipment to come to the Dust Bowl?
1: yeah so indiana um our gravel here it's it's crushed limestone indiana's one of the limestone capitals of the country um our limestone you know goes goes into a lot of the monuments in washington dc and um so a lot of our roads they're they're that crushed limestone white limestone um our event is aptly named the dust bowl 100 because there is a dust cloud that follows the riders and any vehicles (laughs) on course um with that white that white powder from the from the gravel um you know, Indiana. Uh, most people are going to think it's completely pancake flat, um, in, in corn and cornfields and bean fields, and that's it. Um, but I think you'll discover on the Dust Bowl route we do. A, uh, we have a good variety of what you will see in Indiana. So there, there are a lot of cornfields and bean fields. Um, it is fer- fairly flat. So we've got three routes: um, 100 miles, 80 miles, and 44 miles. And for the 100 mile route, you'll hit um, you'll get about 3,500 feet of climbing. So um, not much over the course of that. But but the running joke is is that we stacked all 3,500 feet in the last like 20 miles of the event. So <laughs> um, there's not much. There are some flat stretches, but the event or it, it's kind of all rolling. There's I mean nothing more than you know a hundred foot climb, maybe a 200 foot climb. But it, it rolls enough that by the end of the day, um, all those little punchy times are going to add up and get to you. So, um, but yeah, the course goes through, uh, you know, wide open farm fields um, that you would expect to see in Indiana. But then we go down to some creek valleys um, that are heavily wooded. We go through some nature preserves that are, um, you know, gets pretty dark in there in the middle of summer with the tree cover. Um, we've got some climbs coming up out of the creek beds, um, you know, the route, the 100 mile route is about 60% gravel. So, um, you've got that white limestone, uh, for that part of it. And then the rest of the roads are primarily chip and seal. So, um, you know, those come at welcome times in the course, though. Um, you know, a few people say, you know, I wish you had a little bit more gravel, but there's most people are saying, you know, the intermixed chip and seal or pavement, uh, is a really welcome relief from the, from that white <laughs> limestone that you're getting getting crushed on all the rest of the race. So it's, it's nice to get, you know, a mile stretch where you are you can stretch a leg, sit up a little bit, and uh, and then hit the gravel again shortly after that. So. Yeah, yeah.
0: One other thing I love about the descriptions on, on the website is you, you say the number of historic bridges you're going to cross in each length yes. car course.
1: <laughs> yep. And, um, I think the exploration and just the history of, of everything is, again, something that really appeals to me. And I think the bridges do set, set the event apart though. We've got, um, the hundred mile course, it's two covered bridges, um, which are, uh, you know, kind of a focal point of, of historic Indiana's the covered bridges. Um, and those are always a key thing that the participants like. And then, um, and then we've got, uh, a number of iron bridges, old metal bridges um, that we cross as well. Um, and those, those are kind of, kind of cool just to see that, you know, the, the wooden slats that go across them and then the, the rusted out beams that go across. And, uh, we've had some, some bridges in the past, um, that are closed down to traffic that we've, um, been able to go across. And, uh, and those are really cool too. Cause it's again, it's not something you could drive in a car every day, um, to get to go across these bridges. So I don't know. The, the bridges are something that, that I enjoy, you know, finding on, on a route. We actually incorporated it into our, our logo as one of the, you know, the beams from the, uh, uh, from the bridges. So nice. And then the other thing you
0: mentioned are the off-road adventure sections. What's, what's the translation of that?
1: Yeah. So, uh, we have two, two sections that we call the off-road adventure section. So one of them, um, is about a mile long section. It goes through some private property. Um, it's an old county road that the county no longer maintains. So it kind of got reverted back to, uh, to the landowners there. And, um, you know, when you get onto, onto the road, you're going, you're, you go onto the road, it's, it's, uh, some broken pavement and then it just gets into some gravel and then you get to the end of it and it looks like it's a dead end. Um, it turns to grass, there's some trees overhanging. You can't really see any, you can't see down the trail any. uh, but then the, the science is, you know, go straight here and you go around a little corner and then it opens up into a dirt trail through the woods. Um, kind of a washed out, rutted G2 track section. Um again not really long, but it's it's kind of something completely different from the rest of the course that um everybody seems to enjoy. It adds a little technicality to it. Um it'd be fun to add more sections of that, but we just there's really none that we, we have the ability yeah. to add. Um and then the the second adventure section um is, is at the finish. So um the only way to get so the event takes place, um, at Imminent em- schools, um, a high school in, in the town of eminence. And the only way to get to the school property is, up, is off of a, uh, is off of a highway or a county highway. And so we don't want to route people back through there, um, at the finish when, you know, they're, they're either exhausted and, or they're racing to the finish and we don't want to blow a stop sign, you know, with the traffic coming through there and stuff. So, um, the local fire department owns, um, A big area that butts up to the school off one of the county roads um, and they have a tractor pull track Um, they have a a large grass area there's a bridge that crosses a creek that connects to the school so we basically build a cyclocross course um, in the last half mile of the event where we wind around on some gravel we go down the dirt tractor pull track um, go through the grass cross a bridge go around the cross-country course at the school and then finish um there at the school so um It's just that it's a different finish that I don't think you see at a lot of events. That's a lot of fun. When
0: um, Do you describe the event to riders as a ride or a race? What's what's sort of the tenor? What are you going for?
1: That's something I always try to balance because, yes, I want it to be a race with high caliber racers, um, a fast race. But at the same time, I also want to be completely welcoming to somebody that's brand new to gravel and never, you know, either never participated in a gravel event, never participated in an event at all. Um, So kind of try to balance that and try to share equal parts of, you know, this is a ride. It's also a race. Yeah. Um, And uh, I, I think we've done a pretty good job of that. I think we get a lot of feedback that our course is really welcoming to anybody you can race it as fast as you want to race it um the winning time this year was four hours and 28 minutes so you know almost 23 miles an hour flying fast those guys were were you know smashed at the end and they they put all they could into it um but it's also welcoming enough that anybody can go out as a first gravel ride as a first event and feel comfortable in knowing that they can finish that event um our 44 mile course is really popular with um with new riders um it's a great way to get into gravel riding or, or racing and, um, at a, at a distance that, you know, really most people can, can, uh, can complete. And uh, it's a pretty, uh, friendly course for that.
0: Yeah. In some ways I'm jealous in, in where I live in Marin County, so difficult to invite new riders into the fold simply because we're always going up and down. You know, we have to do an hour long loop around here. You're probably climbing, thousand feet or 800 feet. And that's just not appealing, I think, to a lot of new athletes. So the idea of just being able to invite a newer athlete to, to go on an undulating ride over 44 miles just sounds ideal to bringing new people into the sport.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, um, you know, one thing that we focused on this year is to in, increase our women and junior participants um, kind of with that same idea, you know, make it a welcoming event for people who to the sport. And in 2022, we had 100 women sign up. So we made a goal this year to get 200 women. Um, we got to 195. So we were really close. Close. <laughs> um, and we we more than doubled our junior participants as well. So I think it's it's the same thing, you know, kind of the word of mouth and then just promoting that, you know, it's it's a it's an event that um, the course could be as challenging as you want to make it. Anybody yeah. can complete it um, and you can just ride faster if you want to make it harder. Um, so uh, we are we are lucky with that. And I think it's what's helped the event grow uh, pretty quickly is, is
0: that reason as well. When you think about the men and women who are at the pointy end of the race, does, does the terrain sort of suggest that it it sticks together in kind of a group until yep. those adventure sections start to break it up a little bit?
1: Yep. You're, yeah, that's exactly right. The, so the adventure sections and the, um, uh, a couple of the creek climbs after the cover bridges. So, um, typically the front pack will stay together until about mile 50. So right about the mid, midway point, um, there's a pretty good sized group. And then they hit a downhill section into the first covered bridge. And then it's a steep climb out of that for about a half a mile. And that's where the, the winning break has gone every single year so far. Um, at least the winning selection where. You know, it's either two to two to six riders get away at that point and stay away for the rest of the time. So, um, you know, I've, I've thought and would like to find a way to split that front group up earlier in, in the event, um, make it not quite as, as big. Um, but there's really limited options in how you can do that with not many significant hills around and, yeah. um, and, and not many other, other ways to do that, but. Um, I, I think it makes for a fun and fast event, though, being able to have a, a pretty good group um, all the way through that first half of the event. And then it becomes, you know, uh, a war of attrition at that point. Yeah, I think there's something interesting about perennial
0: events that sort of have that that unique moment that the break always goes in this one spot. So like as an aspiring uh-huh. athlete, you can you can kind of prepare for it and you can test your mettle and you know where it's going down and may the strongest man mm-hmm. or woman win.
1: Yep, that's exactly right. And, um, yeah, I think, I think all that front group knows that when they get to that, that bridge, they better be towards the front to cross it and be ready to sprint up it as fast as they can. And, um, you, you'll see some guys that know that and then overcook the turn at the bottom going into the bridge because they're, you know, trying to, you know, just go all out and, and uh, <laughs> misjudge it a little bit.
0: I was, I was watching a couple of your videos and I saw a few people drift off to the side and either have to kick a leg out or saw one guy kind of in the woods over there. So I get it. Yeah, I, the, yeah. the corners looked a little slick with the limestone gravel.
1: Yeah. We, we warned them multiple times, in the event communications and, you know, right before the race, Hey, you're going to hit a downhill at mile 50, and mile 52. Just be careful. But you know, you get in the, 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 um, the nature of just racing and and there's going to be people that are going to overcook it no matter what. Yeah,
0: you bet. Hey, and then at the, at the end of the event, what kind of experience should riders have in their mind?
1: Yeah. So that's, that's something we've, we've tried to grow and improve upon each year since we started. Um, So uh, we've always offered a full meal afterwards via the catered barbecue. Um, So you get a barbecue sandwich, a side, some chips, a drink, um, we also have some some vegan and vegetarian options, um, and then you know the, the barbecues you get an option of pork or uh, or chicken. So uh, quite a few meal options afterwards. Um, and then one of our the favorites of everybody, um, you know, with the event taking place in Indiana in July, it's always you know warm, um, 80 to 80 to 90 degrees, and we have a a, a snow cone truck that shows up. And uh, all the participants get a, a free snow cone or save ice after the race, um, so that that's always a hit. Um, the last couple of years, we've introduced live music afterwards, just trying to you know liven up the mood and, and get people to stick around and watch other people finish. So we've had um, a lot of local bands come and play that uh, that, that play some great music. Um, we've got a, so we've got a stage with them set up. Um, went with a pretty big stage this year and did our awards from that as well. Um, And then, you know, one thing we're continually, continually trying to grow is like our vendor expo area. So, um, whether it's sponsors or other, uh, businesses that want to come out and set up, uh, you know, a tent and and give participants an area to come and kind of walk around, mingle with the the vendors, um, after they get done racing as well. Uh, again, trying to just have, have that, um, post-race atmosphere, um, there and, and encourage people to stick around and cheer for their friends. Um. We do a bike wash. just Silka sponsored a, a bike wash station this year. Um, it's free to all the participants. Um, the school offers uh, showers in their locker rooms for five dollars, and those those funds go right back to the school to their athletic department. So awesome. Um, those are really popular popular as well. Just to get uh, clean up after that, get that dust off you after the race. Um, so lots of different things. Do some giveaways throughout the day, um, and just really try to make it a fun atmosphere. There's a there's a playground right there in, in the vicinity. So it's it's fun to see, um, you know, families come out as their, as their you know spouses or, um, siblings finish the event. You've got some families congregating their kids. My kids love to come out and just run around during the day. And, um, it, it's a, it's a pretty fun atmosphere. Nice. And, and let's just talk finally just about the size
0: of the event. How has it grown in participation and are you seeking to continue to grow it? Or do you have caps on how many athletes you can reasonably support?
1: Yeah. So, um, Like I mentioned, the the first test run, year zero that we call it, um, we had 34 participants. Um, 2021, we set a cap initially at 250 participants. That was just because of COVID restrictions Um, and uh, was really surprised when we hit that 250 participant uh, limit just about a month in after registration. So uh, honestly, we lucked out. At that point, you know, there had been no events for a year, year and a half. Everybody was looking for something to do. And we just happened to open registration at a time when there were very few events on the calendar. So I think we got people to, to sign up because of that. Um, the county let us in, ended up letting us have um, 400 participants in 2021. So uh, year, year one was 400 participants, um, went to 600 in 2022, and then went to 800 in 2023, um, and have sold out every year. Um, a couple, you know, you may ask, you know, why don't you just open up registration completely? Uh, and there's kind of two reasons for that is, is one is my goal is to make it the best participant experience that I can. And I don't want to just, you know, bring in a thousand or 2000 people and, and, you know, let them loose and and not know how it's going to work. So I I think capping registration, increasing it by 200 or so participants each year has allowed us to grow, uh, manage the growth, uh, make sure we're providing that experience. Um, and make improvements each year to be able to bring more people on. Um, and then the, the second thing is, is again, the event takes place in Eminence, Indiana. Um, it's a town of uh, less than 100 people. There There is not a stoplight in town. There's one stop sign in town. Uh, there's a gas station, two churches, a fire department, um, and a bank. And that's what the town is, is basically made up of, along with a few houses. So it is, it is a small town. We love the town. Um, they're fully supportive of it. but you know, even after the first year where we you're basically maxing out all of the, uh, the paved parking spots in town. Um, the, the, again, the organization has been awesome allowing us to use all their, all their space that we can. Um, the fire department has let us use their grounds and, and we, we have a lot of grass parking there. So, uh, it's kind of one of those things too, though. We just want to make sure that we don't, that we can fit in the town each year by, by, you know, increasing reg- registration incrementally. So. 2024, uh, the goal is a thousand riders. So it'd be pretty cool to hit that a thousand participant mark. And, um, you know, the town, we, we we were able to fit 800 in the town pretty easily this year. So I think a thousand is a manageable number. Um, past that, we'll, we'll see, we'll see how next year goes. And maybe a thousand is what we stick, stick at, or maybe we continue to grow it. So that's great. Is there a a, t- a month of the year that you typically open up registration for the event? Yep. So we've, we've always done uh, registration on January 1st, uh, the first of the year. So, um, I know a lot of events do that. and it's, It can be hard on participants knowing there's, there's multiple events that they got to sign up for in the first of the year. Um, that's what we've done. We plan to do that this year, but we may end up moving that at some point, um, just to get off that first date. But yes, for 2024, the plan is uh, January 1st that registration will open. Um, and we sold, we sold all 800 spots in 10 days last year. So, Um, if anybody's interested in participating, I would say, you know, get on that registration pretty quick, um, to make sure you get into the event.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll make sure they have those links and, you know, going back to John's original text message to me, it's clear that the event will continue to grow from everything you've told me. You've got all the elements of a great event. You're putting the riders first. Sounds like a super fun course and a, a super fun after party. Amazing kudos for the, the town high school offering showers, I love that idea. I love the snow cone. So I think you're really on to something, Mark. And I appreciate you coming on and sharing the story with us.
1: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity too. And um, you know, we've had we've had writers uh, represented from 31 different states so far. So um, I guess I'm going to throw it out there if you're if you're from the West Coast besides California, if you're from the West Coast anywhere. Um, if you're from the Dakotas, all the way across to Idaho, or if you're from the New England area, um, look us up. We'd love to have you out. We'll guarantee you a spot if, you, if you're from one of those 19 states that hasn't, uh, you know, hasn't been to the event yet. So we'd love to have representation from all 50 states at some point. I love it. I think that's a great goal. Thanks again, Mark. Yes, thanks, Craig. Appreciate it.
0: That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Gravel Ride Podcast big thanks to Mark t- for telling us the story of the Dust Bowl 100, and a big shout out to my friend Jumpin' John Grotlin for sending Mark my way. If you're interested in supporting the show, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride, Or ratings and reviews are hugely appreciated. You'd be surprised at how much it helps others find this content if you're able to share, hopefully, a five-star review. And as always, here's to
1: finding some dirt under your wheels.